Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, I think I've mentioned this before. We've had a lot of climate-related guests lately. And part of the reason for that is we keep finding people with interesting things to say. And in particular, I think, interesting experiences in the field of climate science. And this is important, uh, among other reasons, because most of us aren't in climate science. And it's easy to get false impressions about the way that different scientific fields work, including when they don't work scientifically. And thus, I find it very valuable to hear from insiders who are actually there day-to-day, who don't have any mystique attached to it, who just see it uh, for what it is, or at least have, have the direct experience to see it for what it is. So today we have another guest with that kind of experience, a very, very good writer on the subject, uh, David Legates. So David Legates is a professor of geography uh, who is a climatologist at the University of Delaware. He, as I said, is a very clear writer about these subjects, a clear explainer, and has certainly been involved in his share of controversy at the University of Delaware. So I thought he would make a great guest. Uh, I wanted him to tell his story, and so we're going to get him to do just that. So Join us on the other side, and we will be back with David Legates. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Dr. David Legates, professor of climatology at the University of Delaware. David, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. So, Let's go back to the beginning of your career in this field. When did you start in climatology? Well, originally uh, in high school, I wanted to be, I was a weather nerd, so I wanted to be a weather forecaster at a major uh, airport. Um, And so about, I guess, junior year of high school, I started looking around for schools, and I I applied to several places, and I was accepted at, at several of them. So I went to the University of Delaware, and I ran into a gentleman by the name of John Mather, who was a world-famous climatologist, and he'd been a meteorologist. And I explained what I wanted to do, and he said, no, you don't want to do that because climate change is going to be the big issue for, from, you know, through the 1980s, I don't know how old I am now, but through the 1980s <laughs> and beyond, climate change is going to be the big issue. And essentially that, you know, weather forecasting is going to be done by computers. Uh, it's going to be shift work. You really don't want to get into that. So I didn't know whether, you know, he knows what he's talking about or he's just, you know, touting his own place. So I went over to the University of Maryland where I'd also been accepted. And I met with, you know, I walked in off the street and I asked to talk to somebody. And they set me up with um, an older gentleman. Um, and he was a climatologist, famous climatologist, Helmut Landsberg. And he said, we don't do that here at the University of Maryland. I'd encourage you not to come here. 
And I said, well, I've also applied to Penn State. And he said, well, I've been at Penn State for a number of years. All they do is weather forecasting. You really don't want to do that. You want to get into climate change. And so that's what I decided to do. And I went to the University of Delaware. And uh, we went from global cooling, which was the issue in the 1970s. That got turned around. And now, of course, we're overly interested in global warming. But from, I guess, the beginning, uh, I was involved with climate change and climatology in general. So at the time, what did they mean by climate change? Because climate change now has just become this infinitely malleable term to intimidate people, but presumably it had some better or more objective meaning in the academy at the time. Yeah, and climate change was the idea that, you know, your climate never remains constant. So the, the fact that climate is affected by a number of parameters on a variety of different timescales. And what I think La, um, Mather and, and both Landsberg were interested in is an area called applied climatology, which is sort of using climatological principles to better uh, design cities or design housing or to better, in particular, what Mather did was to look at uh, agricultural impacts. Can we use, you know, climate Climatological, climatological knowledge to better forecast um, uh, um, crop yields, things along those lines. So the idea was that climate changes, and for a variety of different things, and how do we use a changing climate, and how do we build that into things that we do in an everyday sense? It certainly didn't have the idea now that climate change is fossil fuel-driven, it's all human activity, and it's all bad regardless of what sign it contains. It's interesting also that it, it seems much more constructive in nature. So even if you even if you stipulated that that there was some sort of problem uh, caused by CO2 in the increasing CO2 in the atmosphere on net, uh, this this approach that you're you're saying here would kind of focus on okay, well, how do we manage that in the best way possible? How is that going to interact with other drivers? Where will life be better? Where will it be worse? Whereas today, it just seems like it's just this narrative of we made Mother Nature angry. Let's try to not uh, do it. Exactly. And that's sort of what bothers me in climatology, because when I got into it, it was sort of a nice science where, you know, it, it wasn't just one thing was causing it. It was like a lot of things. And so you had to really be sort of interested in the number of fe features. You had to be involved in, you know, the changes in the landscape, changes in the atmosphere, changes in the ocean, changes in the biosphere. I mean, everything interacted with everything else. And there were ways in which we could use climate knowledge to sort of further humankind and, and, and you know, be better plan for things, better uh, address things. I mean, one of the things that Mather and company did uh, with the uh, uh, C.W. Thornthwaite Associates uh, was at Seabrook Farms. They, were, they would go out in April and plant, and then they wound up in um, August and September, they were the, the pea harvest was one of these tremendous things where they had to hire all these people and they had to get them out get the peas out of the field because they were all coming due at the same time. They had to package them and they had to throw a lot of it away. And they said, you know, if we don't plant every day back in April, but we stagger it out so we're planting maybe twice a week, the idea is they'll all come due at different times and we can better 
better harvest of stuff. We won't have to hire lots of people. We won't lose lots of uh, lots of our our agricultural product because you know we just can't get it out of the field. We just can't get it packaged and and refrigerated fast enough. We'll have more. You know, we'll increase our our uh, uh, income. But not only that, we'll you know not waste food. And that was the kind of thing that climatology was interested in, was how, you know, better humankind. And somewhere along the line, we all got derailed. And now, of course, it's, it, it's almost exclusively the domain of climate change as it's been defined from, you know, global warming. Well, sometimes it could be cooling. Sometimes it could be this, that, and the other. So, you know, they got wound up with other things. And I think we forget that where climate used to be you know, 30 years ago. Instead, it's all simply, you know, carbon dioxide is the only driver of climate change, and somehow we have to to stop carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because that's the sole driver of climate change. And I, I don't, A, I don't see it, but B, I, you know, I feel bad because it's not what I got into. Yeah, maybe another way that occurs, another way that occurs to me to think about it is just in my book, Moral Case for Falsehoods, I talk about the concept of mastery with regard to, to man and nature, which used to be an ideal that we would progressively master nature, understand its secrets, be able to be more uh, efficacious. And, and it seems like the, the climatology that you got into was aimed at, at mastery, giving us more knowledge of what will happen uh, in order that we can better master nature, whereas the, the premise today is much more like primitive people who prayed to the rain gods, which is just we are helpless in the face of nature, and all we can do is avoid angering uh, her. So it's just this sort of bizarrely primitive uh, mentality, and it's it's upsetting that it occurs in our civilization, and from what you're telling me, it's upsetting that it's, it's, it's co-opted a field that once embraced uh, the acquisition of knowledge to gain mastery over nature. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, like I say, it, it, it started out well, and now somehow, you know, we, 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 it was interesting because there were so many facets to climatology and so many things that brought about change, and, you know, you can talk about local effects, and, and even, even trees themselves will create a small microclimate where you can even see how around the tree it'll, it'll melt snow and how that, all that interaction affect. Nobody talks about that anymore. Somehow we've built these big climate models, and that embodies everything there is to know about climate. So I can go into the model, I can turn a knob, out comes a result, and that result is pretty much what's going to happen. And the only concern that they ever seem to have now is not the, 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 the concern about whether the model really represents reality. The concern is, well, are we really going to turn that knob that far, or can we stop from turning that CO2 knob? Yeah, so well, then I want to ask this. What are some examples of so the tree thing? As soon as you said that, sounded really interesting, and I don't know that. So what are, can you think of some just interesting, fascinating things about climate that we may have learned about 30 years ago that we wouldn't learn about today? Well, I mean, there, there's lots of interesting things about how you know, trees develop. My, my area, for example, is hydroclimatology. And so one of the interesting things we look at is you know, the, the changing landscape. And one of the things, you know, particularly in northern Delaware, is that everybody says, are we seeing more floods and more droughts? And I used to be a state climatologist where I was relieved of that position because of my views. But the idea is 
that, yeah, I think we are seeing more floods and more droughts. And the immediate requirement is, oh, well, that must mean we've got more rainfall due to climate change driven by carbon dioxide. The answer is no. That has everything to do with changes in the landscape. I mean, if you look at northern Delaware back 40, 50, 60 years ago, it was largely uh, rural. There were lots of farms. There were lots of dirt roads, uh, you know, trees and so forth. And you look at it now, and it's it's an urbanized area, and what happened is you get street flooding. That they in the 70s when they were building housing developments, they didn't really come with the idea that you know if if we put a lot of asphalt down, if we put a lot of buildings on the landscape, if we change the landscape like that, that water that normally seeped in and took a while to get to the Brandywine River now gets there very fast because it's running right down the streets, and so you increase the flood peak. But you also increase the, the, the drought because that water, instead of staying in the landscape where it can be used, immediately runs off. And then when you're, you get into a, a drier condition, you've got more people, more demand for water, and you've got you know, a, a potential for more droughts. And we sort of recognize that because now if you look at anybody building housing developments, almost the first thing they put in is a retention pond because you recognize you can't just simply allow all that water to immediately go to the river because somebody downstream is going to get flooded out. So you have to deal with it locally. So it's these, these kinds of things that sort of we, we understand but didn't understand. And, you know, that's where I think, you know, climate effects are really important and really neat. And then, but, you know, everybody wants to do carbon dioxide. Well, and also also just the quote-unquote global climate, which, you know, what, what does that mean for the individual area? I mean, you can have the same global climate and a completely different, it's, I mean, same global, I mean, temperature anomaly and completely different local climate. And that's, that's what you actually experience. Like, I'm in Las Vegas right now for this Republican debate. Uh, you know, I'm experiencing the atmosphere around me. I'm not experiencing the global atmosphere. Right, right. And and we can talk about, you know, global picture and so forth, and that's fine. But, you know, pre climate is much more than just simply mean temperature. And there's always a problem of how, how well do we really even know what mean temperature is. And that's one of the things I did for my dissertation in particular was looking at precipitation because that's even worse variable. But the problem is, you know, most of our observations are located on land. They're located in low altitudes. They're located in mid-latitudes. Mid so they're not in the tropics. They're not in the, in the polar regions. They're not over the oceans. They're not at the top of the mountains. You know, most of the places where, you know, interesting things are happening we just don't have any observations. And so you're making, you know, large-scale patterns based upon, you know, thermometers that, that are really biased in terms of their location. Yeah, that's, that's a whole fascinating uh, aspect of things. So in terms of your, your own development, I want to get at some point to the being relieved of your, your position. But going earlier on, so you, you came into this field with, uh, which was in a certain positive state. In your own observation, how did how did the downward trend go? When did you start to observe negatives? How did it manifest itself? That kind of thing. Um, for me, it, it 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 almost came down to one specific event. Uh, there was I I had got my PhD from the University of Delaware, and 
I was hired as an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma. So I'm there. It's 1988. 1989 winds up being the uh, land run, and I think um, we had this. The, the university was about 100 years old, so it was the 100th anniversary of a number of things in that region. And so they set up this conference, these set of conferences. Each college did this, looking at things that, you know, how, where, what was the current status of your research area and where did you think it was going to go? And they got people coming in from, from other places. And the one gentleman came in from Penn State and he said, essentially, the biggest problem we have in atmospheric science and I'm waiting for, you know, something like, uh, you know, understanding, you know, atmospheric dynamics or things like that. The biggest problem is that we don't get enough money. All of the real money goes to the interplanetary astrophysicists who need their big telescopes and to the solid earth geophysics who, physicists who need to dig holes in the ground. They get all the money. We get nothing. And he says, we're on the verge of making a change of that because this issue with global warming is going to bring us money like we've never seen before. And then he said this sort of take-home message. We'd better not kill the goose that's laying the golden egg. And I always go Wait, back... Wait, he said this in the public? Oh, yeah, this was in the, in the speech. We'd better not kill the goose that's laying the golden egg. Because in his view, this was going to revolutionize atmospheric science because we're going to get lots of money to be able, in theory, of course, to do more research and to do more stuff. But it was really a lament that, you know, you know, we're on the low end of, uh, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the poor sisters in town. And now we're going to have money like the, the astrophysicists have, like the solid earth geophysicists have. We're going to have money to spend. We just better not throw this away. And, of course, looking back on it, I know exactly what that meant. Well, let's not, you know, let's tell the people what they want to hear to keep this going. The astrophysicists never have to justify it because there's always a need to look into outer space. The solid earth geophysicists do have to dig holes. So, therefore, you know, they can justify what they're doing. But if we conclude, you know, there's really nothing here. Climate is a very complicated pattern. We don't understand it. But carbon dioxide is a small player in climate change. Thank you very much. Shut off the gas jets. We don't give you any more funds. And my goodness, we've just killed the goose. So tell them what they want to hear. They'll keep funding us. We'll be able to you know, build bigger fiefdoms, and we'll proceed on. And, and maybe it was because I came from grad school and I had just started into the, the world of how much money have you brought in this year type of stuff. But it, that was, to me, like I said, the turning point, because from then on, the issue of applied climatology became, you know, small potatoes. You go for the big money, you know, build a, build a climate model or interpret climate models or start to make assessments on how climate is changing and link that to human activity. There's lots of money for that. And, of course, you know, our dean at the time was really pushing, you know, we, we need lots of money, if, you know, how much money have you brought in, that kind of stuff. And so that was, that was my, I guess, watershed of effort where I saw, you know, for me, the world changed. I don't know why this hadn't occurred to me in the past because I've heard this kind of story before. But as you were telling that story, I was just thinking, oh, my gosh, the whole scientific establishment is charity cases in, yeah. a, in a certain sense. And, 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 but that's important in terms of just what it means to need funding year after year after year, which is different from, say, a private institution that's 
primarily where people are primarily paid by their you know their base of customers you know they have a certain kind of of latitude but if it's really all dependent upon funding then it's it's a kind if it's in its government it's 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 a kind of welfare and just the idea i can see more why these deans are so preoccupied with this stuff because it's really everything can be taken away and then where are you as a, you know yeah. as, as a research climatologist and see in particular in 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 university there's there, there, there's a number of divisions, but there's almost, you know, faculty divided into two parts. There are the faculty that come from, you know, English and, uh, you know, places like that where you're not going to get lots of big research grants. So your expectation is you're going to teach. You're probably going to teach four courses a semester, um, maybe three or four semesters, so you say it's six to eight a year. If you're in the sciences, you get stuck doing that. But if you do too much of it, you don't get tenure. Um, but instead, how do you get out of teaching? Well, I've got a research grant. Well, how do you get research grants? Well, in this case, in atmospheric science, you go to where all the money was. You know, it's nice to try to do stuff, you know, way out in the center of the field. And I'm really interested in how, you know, the interaction of something that's a little more esoteric, but maybe it'll turn into something interesting. I don't know. You know, you're not going to get much funding for that. But all of a sudden, there's this climate change at the time it was global warming, you know, push from Congress. We've got all this money coming in. And if you can just get in on that, it's a ticket to a tenure, which for a lot of people means I don't have to do any work anymore uh, or very little work. And for others, it means, you know, I can travel the world. I've got research money. I can go use that money for travel. I can hire students to work for me so I can do bigger and better things. I can make a bigger name for myself. You make the choice. Do you want to just spend lots of time teaching, or do you want to travel the world and be a big-name researcher? And all of a sudden, there's all this money available to do the latter. And I'm afraid a lot of people took it and ran. So after this speech, you mentioned this as a turning point. What are some other things that you observed over, you know, in, in the coming years that, that saw this trend continue? Well, I mean, early on, it was sort of novel. And, you know, a lot of people were still looking at it from a, you know, well, this is a possibility, you know, we need to investigate it as well. And if they're going to pay me to look at it, great, I'll look at it. And as it started to go on into the 80s and in the 90s, the money cranked up and it was sort of like, okay, so now we're at a crossroads because we're starting to recognize that carbon dioxide is not even the most important compound on the planet. H2O is the most important compound on the planet. All right. And as, as you know, Michael Mann said in one of the uh, uh, Senate hearings I was at, you know, I think one of the senators asked him, said, why aren't you worried about carbon dioxide when it's a much more of a greenhouse gas? And his answer was, but we can't regulate. So oh, the sorry, idea you said, is... You said carbon dioxide with Michael. I was just... He was. They asked him why. Just to be clear, why he wouldn't, why why he wasn't concerned with water. Yeah. Why Why aren't you as concerned with water vapor when it's a much stronger greenhouse gas? Why are we focused on carbon dioxide when it's a smaller smaller game? It doesn't have as much of a warming capacity. And his answer was because we can't regulate it. And so, in particular, you know, carbon dioxide became the sort of focal center point. It became the push because if, yes, in fact, humans are doing this, the next question is, how do we stop from how much, how significant is this going to play out, and how do you stop it? 
and there's more money for both of those. So we can proceed down the line. And like I said, there are some people, you know, who are who will look at it from a scientific standpoint and make a decision. There are other people who will make their decisions because, you know, the money tells me to keep going. And you have to almost look individually at each person to find out who's in which category. Yeah, and I, I have no experience in well in academia in any kind of uh, except as a student. But uh, in the nonprofit world, there's there's an interesting parallel that I, I have quite a bit of observation of. Just where you, know, you see you have a a donor, just having studied lots of these organizations, you know you have a big donor come in, and they propose a project. And so sometimes the project is just completely out of bounds and unethical. And okay, so that usually doesn't get done, at least at the at the beginning. But then they might propose something that, that the organization really doesn't think is the priority, like the equivalent of C studying the impacts of CO2. It's not really the priority in climatology. But why not? They're paying you, and maybe the funding isn't coming from elsewhere. Uh, but then, of course, what happens is the organization becomes more and more focused on the nonprofit equivalent of of understanding CO2, and then uh, that makes you know new people who are even more in favor of what that donor is interested in more palatable, and suddenly the whole organization has changed in its focus. And then the more unsavory people are, the more they're willing to compromise, uh, the more they get, you know, the, the more the donor wants to support them versus the other people. So just having seen it in, in the nonprofit world, where I'm sure it's more innocuous, it's it's unbelievable to think of what it could do to science, although I guess we see that every day in the, in the news where these scientific organizations and, and institutions uh, are endorsing things like the, the Paris talks. Exactly. And that's one of the things Eisenhower warned about in his farewell speech. A lot of people think of, you know, the, the military industrial complex uh, part of it, but he also mentions when government starts making all the funding, uh, you're going to get the science you've asked for. And that may not be the truth, but you'll get get what you're paying for. Did he? Say, I, I've read that. I've read that. I don't remember the way you just put it. I love. I, I don't. Did he say that you're going to get the science you asked for? I. In any case, I, I don't know if that's the actual words he meant, but that's that's the the implication I got from from reading it. Is he, he did? You know, everybody focuses on the first part with the military and so forth, but there clearly is a concern that he had that if government starts paying for all of the research that essentially government gets the research it pays for and you become dictated by the technological elite. Yeah, I encourage everyone to uh, to look at that speech, particularly the end of that speech. I, I've read it a couple of times, and uh, but I'm going to reread it again uh, after this. But I, I don't think you put it that way, but but I, I those particular words, for whatever reason, strike me. You get the science you've asked for, and I think it, it's helpful in clarifying what's often... Uh, it's uh, clarifying the issue that's misrepresented by this false alternative of either it's either the current state of climate science as presented by the media is either the independent conclusion of a number of modern day Galileos in the aggregate. That's how it's presented. You know, Michael Mann is just a modern day Galileo or it's a giant hoax that one mastermind put together. But the dynamic you're pointing to, I think, makes sense. You know, if if you ask for a certain thing, if if you pay for it, that's going to shape the people by definition who work in a field, i.e., are paid to be in a field. And then if you survey them, uh, you're going to get what you ask for. 
Yeah, here's here's essentially what he said. He said, largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It's also become more formalized, complex, and costly. Uh, and increasing share has been conducted for buyer at the direction of the federal government. Then he goes on and says, the prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocation, and the power of money is ever-present is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific discovery and respect as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. Yeah, I'm not always impressed by Eisenhower, but no, I know and, but, that prediction. Yeah, I I think that was spot on. In terms of your own research, then, so we've talked about some of your observations of the field. How did your own research go? And and we know at a certain point it, there's a there's a point at which you're relieved of your job as as Delaware State Climatologist. But what how how did things go before then, both both positively and negatively? Uh, it really wasn't a problem for a long time. I mean, I left OU in uh, University of Oklahoma in 97. I spent a year and a half uh, with hurricanes in uh, uh, LSU down until to 99. I came back to Delaware and up until about, I guess, 2005 or so. You know, I always said, you know, people would ask me how things going. You know, I've never had a problem with the university. And then I think it was after the climate gate issues that uh, Greenpeace filed a FOIA. And at that point, the university said, well, we have the right to go through all your records. We have the right to look at all your emails. Um, and essentially, when another group came forward and asked for the same material on people who had signed on to the IPCC, they were told by the university, uh, state law says that um, FOIA, law, FOIA law only applies to the operation of the Board of Trustees or to the expenditure of state funds, your request is hereby denied. And so I went over to the senior vice president and legal counsel um, to say, what on earth is going on, sir? And he said, essentially, son, you don't know how the law works. The law says I don't have to produce any documents. It doesn't preclude me from doing so. In your case, we'll go through everything you have, and I and the dean will decide what to release to Greenpeace. What don't you understand about that? And so I said, well, I guess I don't understand it. Uh, maybe I should get a lawyer to help me understand. And at that point, the dean called and said, uh, you can't hire your own lawyer. University Legal Counsel represents you. You must do what he says. And I said, well, he doesn't represent me. And you know exactly what he's up to. And I don't think that's fair. And I don't think that's ethical. And I don't think that's legal. Well, and then she, her conclusion was, well, essentially, this is going to put you at odds with the university. The college will no longer support anything you do. And several years earlier, you know, there had been a push uh, by several groups to have me removed as a state climatologist. And even though supposedly I was told by the former governor uh, not to um, use my title, uh, state climatologist. In fact, she never said any such thing. Um, she said, we disagree on climate change, but you've been very helpful to the state and, you know, gave me a very positive reinforcement. But the news journal, the, the local newspaper sold it differently. Well, this time around, it was the university effectively that terminated me. Uh, and um, 
they brought in somebody else who was much more willing to tow the uh, climate change line. And now, if you follow Delaware, you know, we are very proactive in trying to become the first state to be carbon free. Uh, I don't have any idea what that means. Um, but, you know, they're trying to stave off sea level rise, apparently, and I, it's just a mess. Just as a pet peeve, I don't know why scientists allow terms like the, the term carbon to be used so interchangeably with carbon dioxide, as if those are just I mean, at some point, most of us learn that we're carbon-based life forms, and that's sort of an important thing. So just to throw around the word carbon as bad, just it's revealing to me of the, the political nature of all of this, because the scientist is supposed to give us clear explanation, clear guidance, clear terminology, and it's not just whatever term, just whatever words happen to achieve our political aims, those are just fine. So we have a carbon tax to make us carbon to make carbon-based organisms carbon-free? The, the only thing I can say in their defense is that, for example, methane and carbon dioxide both have a carbon uh, atom uh, in common. But I think the more correct reason they've gone to this route is the idea that when you think of carbon, you think of carbon soot. And you think of, you know, black soot coming out of a, an exhaust pipe, and you think of black soot falling onto you know, your house or your cars. And so that's the implication they want to give you, is that what they're putting into the atmosphere is stuff that you can physically see uh, dirtying up the environment, even though carbon dioxide is an odorless, tasteless, invisible gas that's necessary for life on Earth. Right. I mean, yeah. So that, that that I take your point, but then then it's and it's legitimate to use the term, you know, carbon energy or carbon uh, based energy. I mean, that would be the exact term, but the, they have no interest in that. And yeah, I think that that's one of the associations. And just the, I mean, the idea of carbon free, because if people think CO two, oh, we're gonna have a CO two free atmosphere. It's I think part of the appeal of it is to ignore the fact that this is a naturally occurring part of our atmosphere that we've impacted the concentration of rather than this demonic compound that we've foisted on the universe. Right. I mean, I teach, you know, Geography 101, and we just completed it last week, and the last class was on climate change. And I, you know, effectively said, you know, how much have we talked about carbon dioxide as being a driver of climate change? Uh, you know, as being an element of climate, I should say. And essentially, you know, it was a little bit we talked about it in the atmosphere concentrations, a little bit when we talked about it in terms of absorption and so forth, and that was all it was. Everything else was, you know, other things that have nothing to do with carbon, dioxide, carbon dioxide, I should say. And so as a result, you know, it's, it's a minor player, but it's going back to what, you know, Michael Mann said in the, uh, in the uh, congressional hearing, we can regulate that. We can't control a water vapor. We can't control other things. But this is the one thing that we can control. And I think that's why now we can drive policy if we point to carbon dioxide restriction um, primarily. So what happened in the aftermath of that mistreatment by the university, you're obviously no longer Delaware State climatologist, but what's your current relationship with the university? Obviously, you're teaching. 
Yeah, I'm here. Um, I'm teaching essentially in statistics. Um, this this year, I will have taught more courses in geology and more courses that are cross listed in statistics than even in my home department of geography. I teach generally only one undergraduate course in climatology that I won't teach probably ever again. Um, I haven't taught a graduate course in climatology since since 2007. And is this all for those political reasons? Oh, exactly. I mean, if you look at our college, I mean, we have a very distinct pressure on, you know, we were addressing climate change. There was, you know, a, a delegation of scientists went to Paris and organized a, you know, impact of climate on the oceans uh, uh, scenario so that they could have a discussion there. I mean, it's more chest-beating type of stuff, but the idea is, you know, we need to protect the oceans as well from carbon dioxide and acidification and all that sort of stuff, which, oh, it's another another bizarre feature. So I sometimes wonder in these situations, you, you know these people, and a lot of them you've probably worked with for a while. Do you yep. ever just get in debates with them? I mean, what? how, how would that... How would that yeah, would they I, they, they, the people I know generally fall into into three main groups. There's there's the ones who are the true believers. They they simply believe the line. They their argument is that they think carbon dioxide is you know the evil gas it is. That's what they truly believe. There are those that are sort of um, recognize that yeah. I know that this is an issue, but I'm really interested in natural variability. And to get my grants, I'll put a caveat in there about carbon dioxide and about natural, you know, natural variability and anthropogenic variability, and that gets me funded. And then there are those who will secretly tell me, you know, I agree with you, but I, you know, I don't want to, you know, let, I don't want what happened to you to happen to me. I want to go home at night. I don't want to be harassed. I don't want to have problems with the university. I want to be well-liked. And so I'll tell them what they want to hear, and I'll publish whatever they want to say. And, you know, particularly the ones I know that are in, in government, you know, they're saying, you know, if I do come out on the other side of the, the, the argument, they can fire me immediately. Uh, the ones that really bother me are the people with tenure. They can't fire you over that. They can't fire me over this. But the issue is that, you know, the, the, it's, it's which road do you want to take? Do you want to take the rocky road that follows, you know, with a lot of branches and things around it, but it follows truth? Or do you go the open road where everybody's standing there and applauding, but you know it's a lie, but you'll go there anyway because it feels good? Um, those are the ones I have the most problem with. One thing I've noticed about the climate scientists who say the right things publicly or who are rational about this is that many seem to have a pretty extensive appreciation for the role of energy in general and carbon-based energy in particular in human life. And, and I think that given that that's my own focus, it just, it, it, it seems to be the, so unethical to do this in, in part because it's just unethical to misrepresent science, but also because lives are on the line when you talk about restricting energy. How much energy understanding is there in the the field of climate science? Um, 
There is some. Here at Delaware, a lot of the people that really focus on the energy are more, you know, anthropology-based policy-type people that have, you know, limited backgrounds in science, limited understanding of science, but they're really pushing the policy side of things. Um, The science people, I mean, there's there's a lot of them here, for example, working on, on wind farms. Uh, and so they're interested in wind turbines and the science and the, the wind and so forth associated with them, which, you know, to, to a large scale, that has a scientific effort associated with it. Now, the policy question is whether we, you know, can run a, run a country on wind is, you know, a completely different question. But if you're going to put up a, a wind turbine, where should you put it? How should you site it? How do we optimize the wind on it? You know, those things are more scientific endeavors. But, of course, they never seem to just stay in that realm. It's always been that, you know, I need lots of wind farms, apparently, because the more you have, the more, you know, I'm justified and I can get more money. I mean, I think, unfortunately, that's what it comes down to for a lot of people, is that they're, you know, universities have become very expensive for, for kids to attend, very expensive to operate, and... You know, we need you know, we need you as a faculty member to be bringing in lots of what's called overhead to run the department. I mean, if I put together a grant for let's say a hundred thousand dollars, the university is going to take about thirty-five thousand of that and do with it as they want. Now, generally, that runs the lights and the heats and things, heat and things like that. But you know, the university makes money off of these research grants. So what what would it be like if there were a dean or something like that who who saw the light and just said, "Look, I'm not I'm not going to be a part of this catastrophism anymore. I'm not going to compromise our research based on that." I mean, is there any way they could survive at a major university? Probably not. No. Probably not. I think they'd be removed. Um, I mean, that, part of the reason is you see why the president's climate commitment has been signed on by so many universities. Um, the idea is somehow it, it sounds good, it feels good, we really care about the environment. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that they, message they want to send, you know. Why do you want to send your, you know, your kids to a university that's, you know, in the dark ages, who doesn't understand, you know, or teaching the earth is flat and at the center of the universe. We are, you know, environmentally conscious, environmentally aware, and therefore that, you know, makes us, you know, a tick above everybody else. And so I think that's one of the reasons why, even though, you know, you know, the president of any university probably doesn't have the background, or very few have the background to be able to real, truly understand climate, it's more of a political thrust. We have to do it. And then if, if you don't pull that party line, you're out. So I don't think, I think in order to get to the dean's level, you have to be, you have to have bought into the system. And if for some reason you ever, you know, had a revelation and you decided to, you know, change your view, I think you'd be out in short term, short order. Yeah, I, cu- I couldn't think of any way that would work, but I had a little bit, you know, I'd hope that somebody that somebody could. Uh, one One final question, since we're talking about education, what would you recommend that parents give their kids? Now, I'll qualify this by saying that these kinds of, that aspects of this issue shouldn't even be brought up with kids in my view, but just, I I happen to know a a three-year-old who's become really interested in the atmosphere and clouds and, and, you know, some, his parents are showing me, you know, some books in that field are just completely contaminated with climate catastrophism. I mean, what would you recommend for parents to just give their kids a general understanding of, of the atmosphere and how it relates to their kids' lives? 
I'd almost have to say go back to more classical arguments. Look at books written 20 years ago. I mean, anything written early, written lately has, is going to be tainted by this stuff. But if you get something that's 20, 30 years old, in many cases, the basic science has not changed. I mean, we haven't, you know, magically come up with a it's, – it's, it's not like the, the concept of the atom that we now all of a sudden had a completely different model that we were working with. I mean, climate hasn't done that. So the basics of climate are going to be the same 30 years ago as they are today, you know, the subtleties of the differences. But if you're learning the basics, you know, that's sort of what you want to do is look at older texts that aren't tainted by this, you know, carbon dioxide leads to more severe hurricanes, whereas, you know, it just talks about how the atmosphere functions and how the atmosphere moves and why it moves. Those kinds of issues that don't really need a, a carbon dioxide uh, bias one way or the other. Um, that's all the questions I had. Any any final thoughts from you? Anything you think our my audience should know about that I might not have asked? Not that I can think of. I mean, just remember that uh, uh, the university is the center of liberalism. And one of the things I've learned, somebody told me this a long time ago. They um, said, uh, it's a joke, what's the opposite of diversity? University. Essentially, the argument is in a university, there is only one viewpoint you're allowed to expose, you're allowed to espouse, and unfortunately, this is the one. In this case, it's the climate alarmism. That joke is that joke is funnier than than I. I know that, that to that's be. what always has bothered me. But it is, yeah. I, I use the analogy of just monopolies, like people. If if they understand what a coercive monopoly can do in economic competition, imagine what it can do in competition of ideas. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay, great. Uh, well, David, where can people find more about you online or, or read more of your work online? Um, I don't really run a website, so there's not much you can look up with me. Uh, I'd point you to the Cornwall Alliance website. Uh, Roy Spencer and I and John Christie and a couple other people have written some things there, and uh, I think it's a good um, good uh, outlet to, to go to. All right, David, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Thanks again to David Legates for being on the show. As you could probably tell during that interview, I was figuring out new things, or at least getting clearer and clearer in my own mind about how the scientific slash climate establishment works uh, to distort the kind of information that we as the public get. So this is something I've thought of for a while, and yet there's still much, much more to learn. So I hope that you enjoyed that as well. All right, we will wrap up quickly today. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Uh, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Instagram is just me, Alex Epstein 22, but Facebook and Twitter, there's Alex Epstein, there's Center for Industrial Progress, there's I Love Fossil Fuels, and there is I Love Nuclear. So make sure to check those out. Most importantly, perhaps make sure that you go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for the newsletter. Lots of exciting stuff coming up, and that way you can make sure that you will be all up to date. Uh, as I've talked about in, in previous uh, Power Hours, we have a new course out called How to Talk to Anyone About Energy. Uh, we're getting a lot of good feedback on that. 
check it out for yourself. You can check out the first 20 minutes or so for free at energychampion.net. That's energychampion.net. And yeah, let us know what you think. Hopefully you'll you'll like it. Uh, pick up a copy and become anywhere from two to ten times more effective when talking to family, friends, and or neighbors. And we should add colleagues to that as well. All right, we will be back next week with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.